You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Samuel Juni, who is in your Shlaimer Kodesh. I'm Aprom Kipolevich. And Dr. Juni, every week we engage in a conversation. Um, most of it uh, gets uploaded and Baruch Hashem, we've had a lot of positive responses. But what we've done and reignited our relationship and, and, and been doing every week is really talking and discussing and many times uh, coming from different perspectives. And I think that uh, one of the things that is healthy about our interaction is that we're able to hear viewpoints that we have not heard in the past. Um, and I point to this as something positive within a overreaching world of negativity, <laughs> which is uh, unlike what we do, where we're sort of like happy that we can hear different points of view. Uh, we are in a world, whether we like it or not, where there is a lot of uh, rancor, uh, argument, um, and people shouting perhaps above each other, but and we're hearing this everywhere. You're in Yerushalayim, you're in Eretz Yisrael. Um, I think what's going on there, from what I understand, and from what you've told me, and from what I've heard from reports, is a lot of debate between the Haredi community um, and the government and the people who represent the government about how they're being treated, how they're being uh, pushed around, how they're being um, uh, really discriminated against and vilified in terms of COVID restrictions. And we do get a chance to hear what each side is saying or yelling at each other, so to speak. Uh, here, uh, uh, over here on the other side of the Atlantic um, or Pacific, if you're coming from the other way, we have still the continuing debate about the soul of America and about what what is the libertarian or Republican way of looking at things and what the Democrats want, the difference in science and xenophobia. And, and, and we're hearing a lot, obviously, about each side um, arguing with each other. And um, it's frustrating sometimes when we have to observe that and we see that there's really very little that the, each side is really changing through this. Uh, there's a lot of digging in and a lot of unfortunate, um, although it seems to be the language of debate and discussion, what seems to really be coursing through it, and it's sometimes very much on the surface, is a lot of venom and really uh, a battle that's going on. And I know that that uh, you have been observing that as well, and I know you have some some thoughts about, in general, what... Obviously, the, the the debates are are have always been part of our history, but probably you know now in a world where we're sort of not engaged as much because we're in our little houses locked up, what we're hearing is these different sides, and I know that you have quite a, a response to what you're hearing in terms of debates and arguments. So. Why don't you uh, enlighten us with what you think is really happening, not just the facts that are being, or opinions that are placed on the table. All right, very well. Let me just start by bracketing in where my knowledge base is coming from. So it's coming from two basic sources. Um, I've done a lot of work in Israel for, uh, since 2009, okay, um, getting um, Arab and Israeli um, um, power brokers together for discussions, which turned into debates, which turned into arguments, sometimes it turned into fights. But what I was there is basically trying to understand the process of what's going on here. Um, Of course, when you write these grants, the idea is sure, and trying to come up with some way to mediate or resolve it. But that that was never my real hope. The idea was we need to understand first, and I think I do understand. And the second um, uh, source of my information comes from um, um, basically 
diagnostics with families and family therapy, and it comes from a theoretical orientation called systems theory. So I will um, talk about some of the issues you mentioned and try to anchor it to what I learned from uh, these two sources. So uh, first of all, um, when you have um, disagreements between people, there are several domains. The most simple domain of disagreement is that people's desires clash, okay? And I don't know if you want to dignify that by calling it a disagreement, because they're not really disagreeing about facts. They're not disagreeing about uh, reality or events. They're basically saying, uh, well, in Seinfeld, okay? Um, George backs in, the other guy comes forward, and they have a parking spot, okay? So the argument who really gets the parking spot is not rules, not regulations, not fairness. The question is, I want it, I want it. And that's a clash of needs. There is no um, debate over here. Now they'll use different words and they'll come up with different um, uh, excuses or stories or narratives, but they themselves are not even serious about what they're presenting because if they would know of another argument that goes the other way, they wouldn't present it. So the idea is just, I want it, I'm gonna do what I can. Um, I'm no longer living in the cave, so I'm not going to push you and hit you on the head. I'll use words. Maybe I'll use threats, or maybe I'll use facts, or maybe I'll use uh, citations, or maybe I'll plead with you that my wife is in the hospital, whatever it is. But the point is, it makes no sense to analyze that disagreement. It's just a clash of needs. Okay. And there's no question that what I found in families that are arguing, or let's say among the Arab Israelis, that they're not really arguing about facts at all, even though this will say, oh yeah, Muhammad tied up his mule over here. And this guy will say, well, Avram Avinu was here and Yaakov built rocks over here. They're not really interested in evaluating the facts. They're not saying, well, let's assume that Muhammad did it and Avram did it and Yaakov did it and Bilam did it and Lavan. So that's not what's going on. The idea is just, I want it, I'm going to cite this. You want it, I'm going to cite that. And if you think of it in terms of being civilized, it's much better than people who didn't know how to speak and all they have are spears and stones and hit each other on the head. At least here they're yelling and using media, which allows you to still go home with your head intact. It's a, it's a mile. It, it's, it's an improvement, but it's not more sophisticated than that. So a lot of the arguments fall by the wayside. So if you just apply it at first, we'll get more sophisticated, but you apply it at first, let's say this big conflict, okay? You have a major levaya of the brisker of some, right? Thousands and thousands of people come out violating um, the, the prohibitions of, of the uh, closure here. And of course, you see the argument saying, well, but what about protests? Why not call this a protest? Why not call it a demonstration? I saw this rabbi on TV last night. He's saying, no, I didn't go to all of Iowa. Why are you accusing me? I went to a demonstration of Favratov. So it's a demonstration. Why is it worse than the demonstration against Netanyahu where you do allow people to congregate? And then the guy says, well, we don't allow him. We just don't arrest him. So why do you arrest him here? So what's going on here? The guy knows there's a difference. Is the difference salient? Well, People on one side will say, yes, it is salient. People on the other side will say it's not salient. But they're not really arguing about facts at all. In fact, what I would like to push is an a, um, academic point of view, which is that basically if two people have a difference of opinion, and it's not about what they want, it's trying to figure out the truth, and both of them trust each other, none of them thinks that the other person is intellectually deficient. Nobody thinks the other one's trying to lie. There should be no disagreements. I can give you an example. My wife and I have driven sometimes. We drive. Th we drove through a lot of the United States. Sometimes we, we, we come back. This is without GPS, the olden days. And we get to an intersection. I say, I don't remember if I'm supposed to go straight or I'm supposed to turn here. So I told you know, I tell my wife, I kind of think we should be going straight. And my wife says, I think we should turn. Now, I don't think my wife is intellectually limited. I don't think she's any stupider than me. And I don't think she's lying to me. So if I'll say, why, do you remember some marking point? If she says, yes, I remember the 7-Eleven, I say, I don't remember that. But if she remembers the 7-Eleven and I remember the fence on the side and we share the information, my real conclusion is, is I don't know. So which way will I go? I don't know. I'll go your way. I'll go my way. I have no idea. I don't think 
if I think I'm smarter than her, I'll say, nah, you probably don't know what you're thinking. But unless that happens, we're fine. So um so so that's an example, that's an example of a unprejudiced um objective respect, discussion. Respect, respect. I, I, I tell you, I've had this come up before. I once I've done the diagnosis sometimes, and I have a colleague who is just as smart as me who came up with a different diagnosis. I told the patient, I don't know the answer. He said, but but you said this. I said, yeah, I said this, but he said that. He's just as able as figuring out to me. And I discussed it with him. There's no data difference here. It's not like he got a special report from EKG. I'm, I'm sorry, from the EEG. No. So the answer is, I don't know. So that's fine. So I, let, let me just, uh, okay, let me just bounce something at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, let me hey, bounce something at you before you bounce something at me. Okay, um, please. Because you, you've talked about these benign discussions of where to, where we should turn. Now, I happen to know, again, um, I also have had been driving with my wife and I've also seen images on popular culture and television of people that are discussing which way to turn. And what you discussed without any rancor, without any um, sort of like emotional uh, rise of temperature doesn't usually happen. A lot of times when you do have a couple that underneath their calm demeanor is a little bit of frustration, anger, and other issues, something as parav as which way to turn could become a power struggle. And I think that sometimes, even though the topic under discussion is which way to turn, what's really going on is I really don't like the way you dominate. And the other one I don't really like the way you nag. And there's, there's a whole history of a relationship that comes out in what should be, like you say, very cold facts of is it better by the 7-Eleven or is it better by the shoe store to turn? And yet what happens is, is there's, 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 they're, they're frothing at the mouth about which way to turn because what's behind it is a huge history of, of discontent. And therefore, even though there was a cold piece up until now, all of a sudden this situation lends itself again to the knives coming out, even though what's technically under discussion is just which way the wheel should be turning. And I think you probably have noticed that as well, right? No, you, you, that's a sophisticated psychological analysis, but you really are saying that the argument itself is not an argument. It's not an issue of where to turn. They really don't know. It's the meta issues, the way you say it or the way you uh, aren't willing to listen to me. So those are, and I can understand, yes, is there an argument between people about the way you listen or the way you respect? Yes, but that's not a question of fact anymore. So yes. I agree with you totally. Let me throw out some other... Oh, yeah, wait. Let me get to my question to you. What okay. I'm saying basically is counter to a concept that's all over... I've heard it all over the, the Talmud, which is called which means you have an argument between two rabbis or two Talmudic um, uh, uh, sages, and the idea is they're both right. And to me, you know, you know the joke. You know, the couple comes to the rabbi and the husband gives them the argument and the guy says, you're right. Then the wife gives an argument and says, you're right. And then the, uh, the uh, secretary of the basin says, wait a moment. How can they both be right? They says, you're right. Okay, that sounds like a farce. Okay, I assume as a rabbi or as a Talmudist, that both views are correct means something else to you. So maybe that'll be a counterpoint to what I'm saying. Okay, yeah, well, it's, it's definitely something that um, is, is, is not only subtle, but I think... Um, uh, para- is, is a paradigm almost of what we want the collegial uh, yeshiva to be, um, you know, and 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 it, it, I think it's honored more in the breach than it is in actuality, because most of the time people aren't on the level of sophistication and disconnection from their desires to win. Uh, and I think, therefore, what happens is, is you're right, you are going to sense a personality or a sense of wanting to win the debate, or like you said, this Seinfeld muscle that you gave, uh, I was able to somehow uh, wittily come up with something that shut you up because, and therefore I win. Um, 
that's not really what Elu Ve'elu Divrei Chaim means. Uh, let's even analyze, since you're throwing it back to me, um, the last two words, the last three words, Divrei Elohim Chaim, the words of the living God, which means in some ways each person becomes selfless and just a mouthpiece for God Almighty. And, and that's why the classic example of that is Shammai and Hillel. And, and, and both of these men were considered saints. So as much as they were brilliant, as uh, I know you're doing the Dafyomi, I think you told me, and you saw a little example about a week or two ago of Hillel's brilliance and his ability to sort of rise from nowhere to become the brilliant leader uh, of, of, of the Besden. But we are also told about their incredible, what we call their midos, how they worked on themselves. So in other words, it isn't all about how smart you are and let the kids argue like in a debate club, but it's only after you have reached a certain moral abilities. You've sort of become a tzaddik. You become a kadosh. Now we can say there is no negius. Now we can say there is none of yourself. So it's not on every debate that we say eilu ve'eilu. We are actually, the Chazal knew that most of them are Junis versions. <laughs> but there is, when, but when you get to someone of that stature, and we believe that they went through the processes of becoming the tzaddikim they became. So then what's coming out is really a, a, a viewpoint that God in his magnificence has spread into two different types of personalities, but pure personalities in terms of their conception. So it's almost like you have a diamond and an emerald. They're both beautiful. And they're both pure. In the same way, you can have a, 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 a concept that this brain, free from its negius, came up with this idea. This brain came up with that idea. God wants us as students to look at them in their purity and see how each one represents a great level of understanding. Now, um, in terms of your joke, yeah, they, they are both right. And yet, as Rav Chaim Brisker would always do, you know, there's two dinim. So this one might be right, and this might actually be another layer of right that somehow coexists with each other. I'll give you an example again from the Dafyomi. I know that, I think you've told me you've been involved in the Dafyomi, right, this time around? I don't know. I'm I'm okay, so one of the discussions that that the discussions is what we're talking about a carbon pesach, right? So a carbon pesach on one hand is like every sort of animal that comes from the base on mikdash that you're eating it and treating it like a regular piece of carbon, a, a din in the carbon, and a, and a carbon has its own rules and there's a whole system. But then there's the individual shame Pesach of that carbon, right? So it's sort of like both. On one hand, part of what's happening within it, and you want to stress that, is the, uh, what, what makes it a piece of everything else. On the other hand, it has a certain individualistic nature that, 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 that corresponds to a little bit of a different cadence. So you'll hear people saying, like, when it comes to that, they're both true. On one end, you have one being that has both aspects. Sometimes we'll stress one part of it. Sometimes we'll stress the other. So that's a little example of an elu ve'elu where we could say, hmm, yeah, that, that, that really makes me richer. Because if I only heard a Shammai, I only heard a Hillel, I would not have been aware of that. And, 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 I, and I really would not have gotten the complete understanding of the brilliance of the emerald and the diamond. I would have seen only the carbon part. And maybe the other one would have stressed, no, there's this individual Pesach part. And Pesach is not about being something in the temple. It's about your identity as a Jew. And the carbon part is about part of God's table. So really those two concepts, I, I think, can meld together. And Eilu Eilu, I think, done right is very beautiful. But we have to be careful and not apply Eilu Eilu to everything. I'm not going to apply Eilu Eilu to the argument between the Chassidim and the Misnagdim um, <laughs> when it started, because there, there was a lot of personality, there was a lot of passion, there was a lot of anger, 
there was a lot of frustration. There was a lot of social disruption. So I think it's wrong, Dr. J, to take this Maimar Chazal and say, every Machlekas in Klal Yisrael is Eilu Ve'elu Develu Chaim. That's whitewashing it. Okay, that's my response to that. Long-winded it was, but I hope I clarified it. Okay, so I started with an issue over here that's way beyond me in terms of Talmudic prowess, but I, I want to just push my point for, for one example where it sounds to me pretty much similar to what you have on the disagreement between man and a wife. So I'm thinking of one particular citation, I'll be darned if I know where it was, where there's a question of two students of a, um, a, a, a Tana Amora called Rav, and the two students are arguing what Rav said at a lecture. And one of them swears in God's name that this is what he said. And the other guy swears in God's name that this is what he said. Now, I believe each of them had that memory for whatever reason. But as far as I'm concerned, there's only one truth. And what bugs me is what was each one thinking? Was the other one thinking that the other guy is a psychopath? He's a liar? He's a criminal? He has a personal investment? Or was he thinking that the other guy really believes that? If he really believes that and he's not insane, why are you arguing about this? In other words, if you think he might be insane, why don't you think that you might be insane? Which is a good enough question. So again, I, I, I don't want to make this a Talmudic discussion because I will peter out because I don't know enough about oh. it. But I'm saying this just sounds so not consistent with diamonds and emeralds. This sounds like a factual oh, Okay, story. all right. So let, 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 let me respond to that. Short, make it short because I have a lot I'm going to make it short. What I would say is like this. Rav and other great teachers were able to inhabit alternate and opposite sides in their instruction. And I think what happened was, and that's the way I understand a lot of these uh, incredible traditional things where they seem to be opposite. One of them was hearing like he was presenting the two sides of the opinion. One of them thought that Rav was, was, was saying this side and agreeing with it. And the other was saying, no, no. I, I think Rav's was, 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 was really more with that other side. And that's what I heard him say as the one that was the truer one. Really, it, one of them was correct. But Rav was actually investing in both. That's the way I, I, I think what was going on. That's what a master teacher does. A master teacher... Can inhabit both and, and and be very strong in describing both. I think each one who was a student there thought this was the one that Rob wanted us to accept, and I think that's really probably what occurred there. So again, I'm sort of like rehashing what I said before. Rob and other people, diamond and emerald, and I'm showing you how each one is great in its own way. But go ahead. Okay. All right. So let me move on to uh, some other points here. Go ahead. Okay. Um. So this is now coming not from Arab-Israeli stuff. It's coming from systems theory, but it applies very well to the Arab-Israeli analysis as well. So um, what you find in arguments, especially around family members, is something that in systems theory is called um, one of two things, disqualification and punctuation. I will explain what both of them are. When you have an argument saying, I want to go there, or I remember this happened. I can respond to your wants and saying, um, I don't want that. I want something else. Or I can say, um, you remember this. I remember that. That's addressing the facts. Another way to argue is really to disqualify the person saying, you have no right for that opinion. You're fantasizing. You're taking too much coffee. You're not sleeping enough. You're angry. So your system is biased. That makes for a non-argument because I can't argue about disqualification because anything I say to you, you'll say, no, your very argument is coming from that end. So let's say if I accuse you of being a liar, there's nothing you can do to convince me because I say you're lying right now. Or if I say that you're on drugs and therefore you're not in complete control of your thoughts, anything you'll say, I'll say, aha, there it goes again. The drugs are talking. That's not you. That's a disqualification. And that basically destroys every argument. And that, if I want to apply it, let's say, to this Haredi, um, non-Haredi craziness about masks and keeping distance, 
a lot of disqualifications going on because it's saying, no, you really are not serious about the law because I see that you're not enforcing it elsewhere. So actually what you're saying now is not valid. Or they'll say, no, you're saying you really went to a protest, but it really was a funeral. So we are disqualifying what the person is saying that knocks it out totally. So that's A. The other one that I want, to, the other factor I want to talk about from systems theory is something called punctuation. And what that really means is that when you are not talking about what happened or didn't happen, but when you talk about how did this come to be? So I'll give you an example. The example is the policeman who comes to, to, in response to a violence in the family. Okay. And he comes in and he says, what happened? And the wife says, he hit me in the face. I have black and blue marks. And the husband doesn't deny it. He just says, I hit her in the face because she was threatening me with a knife. Aha. And then she, and the wife says, yeah, I was threatening him with a, with a knife because he was coming at me with a baseball bat. And he'll say, yeah, you know, I was coming with a baseball bat because she was saying, I'll bet you you're too much of a sissy to do anything no matter what I say. And then he says, and then his response, and I'm sorry, and then she will say, you know why I said that? Because she, he accused me of being somebody who has no responsibility and having no power at all. And they'll say, you know why I did? And they'll keep going until they'll get to the year 1982, where someone broke someone's car. I, I would, and you keep going. So the idea here is, is as follows. You have a chain of events. And each person decides where they want to punctuate it. Where did a certain saga start? Like, what was the cause of World War II? We can say the cause of World War II was the fact that um, um, uh, European culture decided to get involved with the uh, Industrial yeah. Revolution. It's no say. So now it's you punctuated one way, I punctuated not. So I, I specifically, let's say, by the Arabs and Israelis. Okay, so these debates I've heard is, yeah, yes, there was 1948. But before that, there was a, a, a program here. Right. Before the Arabs did that, there's no way to solve that. So... This is partially the problem when you have arguments between people who basically frame the narrative differently based on, the, on their punctuation. And again, when you say what's going on with these arguments here, people are just punctuating differently. Some people are starting from two years ago, two months ago, yesterday, five years ago, 28 years ago, 3,000 right. years right. ago. Right. And, and so in a sense, there is no real argument, but I still maintain that if two people honestly want to resolve knowledge of facts and they trust each other, they'll come up with a data pool. If you have an honest meeting, a group meeting where everybody is interested in ascertaining the truth, they will ascertain as much as they want to. And after that, they'll say the rest is random with certain statistical likelihoods of one or the other, factoring in everybody's opinions. And then there's no disagreement whatsoever. All right. So if that makes sense, I'm willing to go in, into two other places. So um, I wanted okay, to talk about- before, just let me just add uh, 20 seconds. That's really in a way, if you listen to the debates here on our side of the Atlantic uh, between what's going on. I mean, everybody um, condemned uh, summarily and terrible the capital uh, insurrection. Then the question is, what was it that brought there? Was it right? And what was it? You know, and most people will say that. You know, Trump was guilty of, of, of a very bad behavior and ugliness, xenophobia. But what caused that? Did Trump, right? And, and, and you will and hear what this. caused the cause? Right. So you will find the Democrats saying Trump caused everything. And the, and, and, and the people who aren't necessarily Trumpists on the, on, on, on the right will say, no, it's really government overreach during the Obama years and everything that caused this reaction to accept Trump. It's really, and now you're trying to do the same thing again uh, by fiat, Joe Biden and others trying to change the world again, and people and are going to react. Back from, and why did Obama feel that you have to have government regulation because of X? And you keep right. going. And you right, which is, right. So the, the, what you're you saying. Duel of James Burr. I mean, sure. Right, right. right. Aaron Burr, sorry. Aaron Burr, yes, yes. Yes. You have to, okay. you have to, you have to watch Hamilton again. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sorry. I, I can spring for another ticket. No problem. Yeah, sure. Okay. Disney okay. Plus Disney Plus has it for, for, you don't have to pay anything, but go ahead. Okay. Okay. So anyways, I, I wanted to talk about a, a little bit of a tangent, which I think relates to this as well. And um, um, 
people who have convictions, strong convictions, and, and I'm talking particularly from my Israeli experience now, especially religious convictions, come across as people who really are arguing based on certain facts and certain arguments that they figure not to be specious and not to be just um, uh, um, Machiavellian, but they really believe in this stuff. And I've seen clashes, especially now, between so-called um, um, Haredim and so-called Naharedim arguing about how things should be, etc. And um, something struck me. Um, most Haredim, at least the, the ones who are arguing for it, come from families of Haredim. And most of the non-Haredim, especially the, the left uh, ideologues, come from families which are not religious. Now, um, there is something odd about this, because if each of these were really evaluating the data that's available, we would expect a total random distribution. In other words, here is somebody who is a major Haredi figure who comes from a very Filoni background. And here is a major um, uh, um, spokesperson for Meretz who comes from a very religious background. Because if the data is all there, I assume the data can all be interpreted two ways. So if everybody looks at things independently, there should be a random distribution of where people come from. It's not so. I would say... 85% of the people, at least the spokespeople, are propagating the knowledge that they were raised with. And there's no question that this means, ipso facto, that they're not really talking from conviction. They're talking from comfort or from habits and then using these facts as explanations or justifications for what's going on. And I think it really is a, a straight piece of cognitive dissonance theory which says that the way we start believing in things or become convinced of things is between being involved in a certain social active situation where you do things, and then part of you says to yourself, well, if I do things, I really must believe in it. I mean, I just love some of these young people I've seen who go into Kirov, right? They have no idea of the rationale of any of their religiosity, but they're willing to go into Kirov. What are you going to do with this Kirov? Tell them, hey, I'm happy, you should be happy. That's hardly a basic argument. And that brings me to a question to you, okay? As a rabbi, again, um, I've seen from the Chabad rabbi uh, advice to people who have significant um, uh, um, uh, conniptions about their religiosity and basically about their theology, about their belief system. And his idea is just go ahead and do the mitzvahs. Whether you believe or not, just do it. And I guarantee you what's going to happen is your religiosity will kick in. And me, from a cynical perspective, say, okay, this is a great piece of, he must have read, you know, cognitive dissonance, and he knows that people will ultimately be turned around to believe in what they're doing, so they don't feel dissonant about it. I give the Lubavitcher Rebbe much more credit than being cynical like that. So I'm I'm wondering if you can comment on that, because that's kind of a a thorn in my understanding of somebody who was otherwise, I mean, a really great um, um, thinker. And I'm wondering if you have a comment on that. And he probably took it from some kind of Hasidic or Musser uh, theology. So you, you're asking. Thinking. You're asking about Rav You're asking about the last Lubavitcher Rebbe, or yeah. you're asking about the specific Chabad Shliach. You're talking about the no, Rebbe. No, himself. no, this is the Rebbe himself. I read okay. it from the Rebbe himself okay. in his writings. Right. Okay. So, so if, you, if you comment about that, the notion of people just um, being encouraged by the system to do things. And somehow that makes them believe, which seems like it's kind of um, taking the, the the whole thing backwards. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll try. One thing I should say uh, is that in general, uh, reading letters, and, and they have collected a lot of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's letters uh, to various individuals, and and, and noticing uh, if, if they are edited honestly, that the different things are said to different people. And sometimes the same question is given a different answer, depending on the person that's being addressed to. I think is itself um, uh, illustrative of what we talked about before about there not being one specific truth for each person. But you're right; there are definitely people that the Reb and others would have given this etza to look. Put your doubts in a in a cookie jar right now, and just start doing these things. And I think, as you said before, or at least we, we talked about it previously, this really is what happens to almost every child, right, that that starts in a school system, right? They basically said, yeah, you're going to go to school. Here's your little school outfit. Before you can even start thinking and formulating and, and being skeptical, you're already in that world. 
And that's really, in a way, what the Rebbe was trying in some ways to say, look, start being in that world, get that comfort, get that. And this way, uh, the cognitive dis- dissonance issue will, will rear its head. And you won't want to be anything different because you're already part of doing this, not just within yourself, but the other people that you know are doing this as well. And that's going to give you a sense of calm and good feeling about it. So I, I, I don't deny that the Rebbe probably had a psychological understanding of the person that he was talking to and felt that this was something good. But I also think that the Rebbe believed, uh, and I believe it as well, although I'm not sure if you do, that there is something called the essence of the Jewish soul that is somewhat, in a way, trapped or enmeshed with, the, with, with, with all the jukas and, and, and weirdness of the human personality. And by God giving us the Torah, God is saying, here's a little rope. And if you start doing this, there will be a, uh, uh, a assertion of that soul. And the soul will somehow be able to bring itself out. I talked before about the pureness of Shammai and Hillel. The Rebbe believed all of us have that purity, and it's just under the surface. And by doing Torah mitzvahs, somehow that will cure us of a lot of our uh, weirdness uh, and, and prejudices and negativity. And by doing that, the soul will somehow be able to shine forth. Uh, even though when it started, and let me just say it better, you weren't mentally there at all, but the soul is more than your mental capacity. The soul is the life energy, which is bigger than your brains. It's something that's your life force. And therefore, even though that life force is motivating you to just put the, wrap the tefillin around your hand, it is start, your soul gets energized. And therefore, eventually it rises and then it becomes supreme. And then it's able to, so that's, that's the philosophy behind what the Rebbe was saying. I think there's a really, you know, uh, a, a third way, and I don't think the Rebbe ascribed to this, and that is what, you know, the, the anonymous author of the Sefer HaChinuch is known for, which is, Adam Nifal Kefi Pu'ulasov, right? We, uh, when we do actions, and maybe this is really cognitive dissonance theory, we change based on those actions. Um, You can contemplate the greatness of the Jews leaving Egypt, but when you have a lavish meal and you actually smell the food and you look at that, that animal that's there in front of you and it reminds you of all these things and you are told how you have to stay in one spot and, and, and how you have to eat it and you can't break the bones. Somehow that is uh, uh, making a concrete message to you. You are an aristocrat. You are something great. You're not this schlub who doesn't have a job and is being persecuted by the Gentiles. You are, you, so doing the action, as the Sefer Chinuch says, can actually start giving you a mental freedom and a mental strength that thinking about it won't. So that, again, so that's what I would say the Rebbe might have meant. Again, I might have over-answered this, but I think I've responded to you. Sounds very nice. Sounds good. Okay, let me nail in one more thing since I'm using you tonight rather than the other way around. There's one other thing I wanted to come back. Again, talking about my perspective of all these arguments, and people generally have a form of hierarchy saying, well, there are brutal animals that just do things by force, and then there is us, we know how to speak, we know how to converse, and that puts us at a higher level. What I've learned basically, I mean, primarily from patients, but also, unfortunately, looking at the Arab-Israeli interchanges and now at the um, Haredi versus non-Haredi interchanges that are going on around Corona, is that using words is just a, um, an alternate to pushing people around. I find nothing more lofty or more sophisticated, or something compelling about somebody uses one syllable, two syllables, six syllable words with all kinds of citations of laws or whatever. They're basically just saying, this is my damn parking spot, or this is my country, or this is where my grandfather had olive trees. Get out of here or I'll kill you. And the other ones are saying, well, we're smarter than you, and we have tanks, and we've survived all kinds of holocausts, so we're going to get you. That doesn't impress me more than two guys going at each other with baseball bats, 
or with machetes. Okay, so I have a very low opinion of the sophistication here. And when somebody asked me to chime in, I just say, these are just two bullies, you know, each one with their own powers. Some are using verbal powers, some are using laws, some are using policemen, some are using some historical snippets, but come off it. They, they fit into Seinfeld. They all belong in Seinfeld. There's no depth there whatsoever. Now, I know that this is not reflective of the basic theology I've heard from, well, I'm trying to think where it comes from. It's from Musser people, or does it come from else? I don't remember from where, that somehow the idea of human speech puts them at a higher level. Okay, and I'm wondering if you want to comment about that, because unfortunately, in my experience, there is nothing more sophisticated about verbal arguments than about physical arguments, other than that sometimes you get injured less. Although I some, see some people who've gotten um, decimated from some verbal aggression, I mean, verbal molestation that's been worse than any kind of abuse I can think of. But I, I think there is a Jewish philosophical counterpoint to this. And I would like you to comment on that. And okay. after that, I've exhausted all my wisdom on this. Okay, well, we're pushing really a, a, quite a long episode here. And, and this is, a, I think, a, you know, a topic that a lot of people have, have talked about. <laughs> um, before I answer, though, I'm a little bit surprised that you are even having this question, because, you know, I know that you are a, um, a uh, you were born speaking Yiddish in your house, and um, you still think in Yiddish, as you've talked about on this program. And yet I have noted, even from our little interchanges and all the wonderful articles that you've written, wonderful, I guess is the wrong term, but um, scholarly and interesting, you are a person who actually thrives within the subtlety of language and is very, very careful about the words that you use. And I can see how you are crafting uh, the mallet within uh, the words that, that you're using and, 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 and tempering it and changing it and how language is able in a way, not just to, it's not the baseball bat, but in a way it's, it's really refining and, and, and being very, very succinct and, and, and direct. Um, so obviously the use of language, and it wasn't just in Jewish, uh, the Jewish philosophers, everyone saw that's how man was different than the animal, that man was somehow able to, um, able to uh, use his power of expression as a, a sense of his rational being. Uh, you know as well as I do, and you knew it before I did, uh, the Unculus, uh, the, the great translator of, uh, uh, of, of, the, of the Bible, of the Torah into Aramaic, where it says uh, that man's soul was breathed into his nostrils and he becomes a living being. When Uncle says, man becomes a speaker. Man is able to use speech as opposed to other animals who have speech on a limited level, you know, dolphins and chimpanzees. But man becomes someone who's able to use that power of speech. And that power of speech is where the mind uh, shows its ability to uh, be able to connect, to convince. Um, and, and, and that's considered almost the highest thing a person uh, is able to develop. You know as well as I do, and I, I'm happy that you're asking me, but you heard it before I did. Uh, there's this medrash that says a person has a limited number of words he can say in his lifetime, right? It's almost like speech is the golden gift. It's the elixir of life. And and the words that you say are representative of that of, of that of that of that energy and power that only lasts a certain amount, and that uh, uh, you know the power of 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 Dibur. So uh, you know it's 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 all over the place. Is to answer your question, um, you know we do see and and again I'm just going to parenthetically say that you're also familiar with semiotics. Uh, the science of semiotics and other things that talk about how language indicates um, and, and how a society develops and changes. Um, and and I, I would add over here uh, that, 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 that the standard rabbinic take is that the languages and the 70 languages, for example, and Lashon HaKodesh all represent things that are set in stone. For example, 
the, you know, Hebrew or Lashon HaKodesh, the language, the words that our society came up with is somehow elevated and great. And then the other nations have other languages. The, the semiotic version of language is, is, is very different, which means language changes consistently. And when words become when words become old and people don't use them anymore, it's normal for things to develop. Language is not, so what I'm trying to say is, is that rabbinic sources elevate the use of language. And then we talk about the holiness of the words that we use in our community. And that becomes something that 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 is so uh, important that you, using other languages, the other languages represent an alternate or a different reality as opposed to communication as, as, as human beings just trying to communicate with each other. I don't know if I'm being clear or not, but, but what I think I'm trying to say is, yes, the, the, the rabbinic sources, the traditional sources don't just make language the difference between a stick. They really see it as you know, the, 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 the highest level of what God gave us manifesting itself, and then eventually becoming the core identity of that people. So in other words, people will say, do you know what uh, love is? I'll give you an example, Hirsch, Hirsch's example. Love, it's like one of the great terms, right? What is the Hebrew term for love? Ahava, right? Ahava. So Hirsch and others will say, let's analyze that term, ahava. It comes from the term hav, which is to give, to give to others. So in other words, our concept of love is based on our analysis of that word that, that means love. And that word is related to the word of giving. So love is always about giving to others. It's not about what you want. And that is supposed to, in a way, loving our language, our specific language, is supposed to give us lessons about what we are as, and what we should be. And that love can't be just this selfish way of just getting whatever you want and getting the parking space. If I love you, I want to give to you. I want to give you things. And, and that's because of our language. That's because of the word we use for ahava. So that's just, just an example of the elevation of human speech and the human terms that we have for it. I, I, I know this is something that's, that you, you probably think is, is very uh, cute and inventive, but ultimately uh, fantastic and, and, and incorrect. Right? Okay. I, I think basically that between our exchanges, we've staked out the points over here. Okay. I don't want to uh, come down and say this is right and this is wrong, although I have some opinions about them. But again, I don't think that you are lying and I don't, I cannot <laughs> disqualify you as being somehow uh, not justified in making any statement that you're making. But, but I think we've, I, we've staked it out. That's, I, that's more than I wanted to do, to take out the major points and trying to conceptualize or, or to contextualize what's going on over here instead of being puzzled. I'm definitely not puzzled, and it doesn't sound like you're very puzzled either about what's going on. You may have a different perspective about the validity of certain arguments, but there is no surprise in what's going on here that you can have people who come come across with fairly detailed, intelligent-sounding points of view that just clash at each other in a way that they seem to be irreconcilable, which is quite profound situation that we can say for political situations both in Israel and in America and it's something that I feel often is true about individual arguments and arguments about families just you all you can say is this will continue and you can throw in the towel yeah. and you can expect that they'll keep calling the therapist and they'll keep calling the cops and occasionally the ambulances as well well, no way well you know just to throw in one positive thing so we shouldn't end on ambulances. Yeah. yeah. I think that what might be in Israel, a good aid, it's not going to help the Republican Democrats split here, but I think what might help in Israel is mandatory learning of Arabic and mandatory learning of, 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 of Hebrew. I think that based on what I was saying before, knowing a language of uh, and, and studying it as an academic exercise I think will help a lot because I think when the debate occurs, 
there is this there is this coming you're right you're always you want the you want the parking space but it really helps i think when you you know a little bit of the of the structure of the way the other party thinks i think that if, if i think it's because it stops you from totally disqualifying them no the guy is not off the wall he may not be on your wall but he has a wall right but but instead of what's being done here in the United States with the 1619 project and other things where you're forcing people to study a version of history and a, and a, and a way of history, it should be done in a more academic way. Whereas, you know, oh, Arabic. Yeah. You, you, we have to study Arabic. Why? doesn't make it. But now when the conversation occurs, there's a certain inherent connection you're going to have. And I know that was true, by the way, uh, in, in, the, in the formation of the United States and other times when the great diplomats could speak French and they were able to discuss things with each other. The, 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 the broad aspect of understanding was, w- w- I believe, and again, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that when you look at the way 19th century uh, uh, d- diplomats spoke, who spoke French and they, and they were multilingual, like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, they, their understanding and ability to accept the other was much greater. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and if I can throw in the, the psychological counterpart, the best headway people make in therapy for family arguments is to say, yes, I know you think the other person is wrong totally, but you need to role play for two minutes, pretend you're him and just say what he would say. Then you can tell me why he's wrong. And that itself just enlightens people saying, yeah, he does have a perspective. He's damn wrong. He's a Michigander. He's a Chaya. He's a maniac. But yes, he has a perspective rather than saying, it just doesn't make any sense. Look on TV over here. What's going on? I remember Maureen Dowd going nuts saying, what are are the Republicans thinking? They're out of their minds. They might be out of their minds, but they're thinking something. So why don't you stop and just say what they're thinking? Then you can disagree. So I think that's the quality, the quality, I think, I'm picking up from your Arabic, which means get to know their perspective, even though you're convinced 100% they're wrong. Just getting to know the perspective will change the tone or the, the, the direction or the possible solutions here, rather than saying, hey, you're just Meshuggah, you're just off the wall, you're just a parasite. That's not the way to go. Yeah. It's not the way to go in family situations. It's not the way to go in intercultural situations and probably not an international strife either. And, and just let's end with one last thing. I guess what you could also do is that's where art comes in. Uh, I know I wanted to have a, a, a discussion with you about binge watching on television. I, mean, I think people who, who watch programs that portray, portray, portray in a sympathetic light the other, where you don't, where you, you are behind the screen, you don't have to engage, but you know what? Wow. I see. That's that's like oh, that's the Arab family. That's the Republican family. And and watching it played out allows you a sympathy and uh, that that you wouldn't have otherwise. So I, I think our artistic uh, disc- portrayals of these things are also a positive way to help you in the real world. Even though, and I think that's it's 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 non-threatening, and you can enjoy the show. Um, and but meanwhile, you're picking up like people pick. I know, again, I, I mentioned this a couple of months ago in our discussions, how my daughter-in-law and my son-in-law, who, my son, who, you know, they're not Haredish, but watching Shtisso helped them a lot in terms of feeling much more comfortable walking in Meisharm. So I think that that's really a, a positive. So um, get out your uh, uh, hopefully people will be a lot more uh, based on our discussions and other uh, advice out there. Uh, lower the temperature, as they say, and uh, be able, hopefully, to continue. And because it's only with good conversation and understanding that we're going to get through this, um, uh, right? I'm sure you agree. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 